Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Refocus is a new exhibition at the Swan Coach House Gallery featuring works of four emerging black women photographers with new perspectives on black art, life, and culture. Later this hour, City Lights producer Summer Evans speaks with two of the artists and curator, Dr. Fahamu Peku. First, the city of Roswell celebrates its annual Youth Day tomorrow. The day-long festivities contain everything from a parade to arts and crafts to live performances. As part of the celebration this year, the Colombian-born singer, songwriter, and educator Natalia Palis will perform her original, lively blend of children's songs in Spanish and English at the Roswell Cultural Arts Center from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. Natalia joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me here today. Please tell us what led you to create children's music. Well, my background in music therapy is definitely an inspiration or just an influence in the way I create my music. I've been working with children ever since I graduated from college. And I've always having to create songs for the clients that I was working. And as I was teaching in early childhood, I was also making up songs for the little ones. But the bilingual aspect of my songs began when I had my own children. And I thought music was the best way to incorporate my rhythm and my culture and my language. Oh, so lovely. You studied music therapy I read at the Berkeley College of Music and then went on for a master's degree in clinical psych. When it comes to writing the lyrics, how does your background play a part in the way you approach songwriting for children? I think 
everything about me and my experience from my culture and my country and my music, my experience as a parent and the, the way I observe children in play as a music therapist and as a licensed marriage family therapist is kind of what helps me write songs. And I, you know, it, they can be viewed from the point of view of a parent or the point of view of a child, but just trying to capture the entire experience and all of it is just blended and they just appear naturally, organically as I'm writing. It's just the song kind of appears out of nowhere. Yeah. And that's kind of how that happens. How old are your children now? Oh my, my oldest is 18 now. And my youngest is 11. Oh. Explaining death to children can be very difficult because it's scary. How do you approach the subject in your song, Dia de los Muertos? So, Dia de los Muertos is a Mexican festivity. The most interesting part is the fact that in Colombia we don't celebrate Dia de los Muertos. It's also celebrated in Guatemala. But living in Los Angeles for a long time and having so many Mexican friends, I fell in love with this celebration of life because Dia de los Muertos, even though it says Day of the Dead, is a celebration of the life of those who are no longer with us. Approaching it that way, you know, the lyrics in my song say, we await you with open arms and we remember you and you continue to live in our memories. So they're never gone because we love them so much. So I, I don't think we, we talk about the finality of death necessarily in that song. And it's not something also that it's talked about in Dia de los Muertos because it's a remembrance and it's honoring the ones that live in our hearts. Hmm. Natalia, please tell us about your latest album, Mil Colores. So Mil Colores, that translates to a thousand colors. And that's exactly what the album is because it features a variety of Latin American rhythms and, you know, rock instruments and jazz arrangements. And because I'm Colombian, I bring my traditional genres that I grew up with, but my husband produces and he brings his jazz background and his rock and pop American background. The, the inspiration to all the songs was basically to empower little ones or children and families, one, to have fun together, to listen to music together. I try to be a bridge between ages. Like I want little ones and older ones to be able to enjoy songs together, but also a bridge between cultures because I want the entire family to be able to listen to some Latin rhythms and recognize them, but also some American or world, you know, rhythms that you're that they can also find 
you know, comforting because they recognize them as well. And in terms of the themes of the album, I wanted to just come back to the joy of playing and being a child. I have a song called Unplug and Play, where I really encourage to like, let's go back and play hopscotch and ride a bike and be outside, you know, just look around. have a song called Los Mas Pequeños that talks about how we can learn about all the little insects that are everywhere. So just encouraging to be more present in this world and playing and going back to traditional fun. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the children's musician and educator Natalia Palis. You mentioned styles. Your music covers a wide range of styles from rock to cumbia, jazz to reggaeton. What attracts you to that variety of styles? I think what attracts me is curiosity. I come from a coastal town, Barranquilla, in Colombia, and we are very focused on our carnival and our traditional Colombian rhythms, and that's where the cumbia and then bullerengue or mapale and all these very Afro-Latin rhythms, you know, kind of, you know, I grew up with all those. And then coming to Boston, to Berklee College of Music, and then just being exposed to all the other Latin American rhythms and jazz and, you know, just the artistry and talent that you find just made me so curious in exploring and opening up and just doing more. And I find that children need to expose to all to all these different genres. We don't approach the song as in, hmm, what genre have we not done or completed? <laughs> we, we never do anything like that. We literally, like, like I said, the song is born. And then we're like, what does this sound like? Oh, my, we should blend this with this. Or, you know, I think about it as a, you know, I could say a cumbia. But then, you know, when my husband listens to it, he approaches it in a different way and it became, becomes a blend, right, of both of our cultures and our experiences in music. So it's very organic. 100%. Every song is approached as if it was a single and standing alone because we just enjoy the entire process of crafting the song. So we don't know if it's going to be all in English or it's all going to be all in Spanish or it's going to be a blend of both. We, it, it just kind of starts evolving as, as we're creating it. Among your albums, one is titled En La Radio. What can you tell us about that project? I think I detect radio in Spanish there. So, En La Radio has, again, you know, we're just going from one genre to the other. 
And other than it being bilingual and exploring children's themes, we're like, what connects our album? And we wanted to make it as if you could switch radio stations. So in the actual album, if you purchase the actual album, like the CD, um, in between, there's little clips where it just shows the, the changing of stations, of radio stations. And, you know, there's my, my son is featured there being like a narrator of something and, you know, a commentator. My uncle is doing like a sports commentating in Spanish <laughs> in between. And we're all pretending to be radio broadcasting people in between. Unfortunately, the clips were so little that you can't find those in Spotify or, you know, the streaming services. But in the actual album, if you listen to the entire thing, you're switching between stations. And that's why it's called En La Radio. music and language initiative in schools you are part of? So I've created an early childhood music program. This is definitely influenced by my background in music therapy and just my observations of working with little ones. It's more a social approach to music. When I work with little ones, because I'm working with infants, infants they're sitting on a boppy or one of those you know infant chairs they're barely sitting some of them and i'm singing to those little ones up to five-year-olds so it's a big range you know though the the level of growth and awareness that occurs in those first five years is is very different so when when i work with little ones it's just what is developmentally appropriate for them so for infants it's exposing them to you know just calm sounds and different props and colors and you know just exploring and it's very calm and soothing as they start growing obviously the music and and pro- our program changes so to make it more developmentally appropriate for them but again like i said it's more of a social interaction in music i'm not singing or teaching do re mi fa sol at this point or anything like that it's listening to each other it's sharing instruments it's waiting our turns it's finding our voice it's singing together so that is the purpose of the program and you know exploring cultures too i'll bring songs from different countries exploring holidays i'll bring songs from different holidays as it goes along and and kind of making the learning experience whatever they're learning in class also bringing it to the music class so that they can be exposed with a fun song about what they're learning in class Hmm. so you've recently moved to georgia when was that we moved february 2021 and what brought you here 
Well, the most honest answer would be affordability. Also being closer to Colombia. The flight from LA to being home, especially in the middle of a pandemic, was frightening to me. How, how, how far away I was from my parents. I wanted to be closer to them. And then the space and the change of scenery and the fact that when the pandemic hit and everything shut down in LA, we found, oh, this is the perfect time. We've been wanting to go to greener pastures. And by green, I really mean green. It's very <laughs> green in Georgia and it's beautiful. The nature is just stunning. And we, we just wanted that experience of nature. LA, I love it. I love the beach and that's what I miss the most. But it's very dry and, you know, we were feeling, you know, just that we wanted a little change or a big change. <laughs> it sounds like you made a great one. So tomorrow, what can we expect to see and hear at your performance? Okay, I am so excited because it's going to be a full band performance. And like you mentioned, it is a celebration of Youth Day, but it's also Hispanic Heritage Month. So of course I'm celebrating that. And then it's National Arts and Humanity Month. So what better way than having a bilingual concert? I'm going to be singing all my original songs. Expect a lot of dancing. Expect a bubble party. Ooh. Expect just fun and joy and just very interactive. I love bringing my audience into the songs and into the experience because the the art of making music and creating music has to be a community experience. So it's going to be so much fun and I'm so excited about tomorrow. Colombian-born children's musician and educator Natalia Polis. She'll perform tomorrow, Saturday, October 8th, at the Roswell Cultural Arts Center as part of Roswell's annual Youth Day celebration. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash in a moment, City Lights producer Summer Evans catches up with the creatives behind Refocus, the new photography exhibition at the Swan Coach House Gallery. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. 
the brilliant 19th century abolitionist Frederick Douglass was an early believer in the power of photography. The camera could depict African Americans with dignity rather than the racist, stereotypical imagery circulated at the time. The new exhibition at the Swan Coach House Gallery refocused features works of four emerging black women photographers with new perspectives on black art, life, and culture. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke via Zoom with the curator, Dr. Fahamu Peku, and two of the photographers featured in the exhibition, Stephanie Brown and Melissa Alexander. One of the things that really drew me into wanting to cover this exhibit at the Swan House Gallery was the discussion of photography's history and how it has been wielded as a tool for imperialism and in particular white supremacy. Would you tell us more about the relationship between racism and the camera? There's a, a number of visual culture scholars who, who do work around photography and, and talk about the relationship between photography and racism and white supremacy, particularly the ways in which photography was used as a, almost scientific record to document the states of man. You know, there was a number of projects where to sort of back up their theories around the ways in which different races of uh, human beings were less than white people that they use photography as a way to verify that, right? You know, before it was maybe even considered art, photography was really used in the sciences as a way of providing irrefutable evidence of, you know, certain claims that were being made. But then over, uh, over the course of the history of the medium, I think we've seen photography being used as something to document what people would consider the exotic or the, the strange or, you know, othering people as opposed to trying to represent their humanity. And I think we, we you know, we, we can look back at, you know, the changes that even certain publications have made over the years, like National Geographic, for example, often use photography in a way that, you know, has been criticized as being inhumane in, in, in documenting people in, in ways that, again, uh, sort of deprive them of humanity. And even, you know, still to this day, there's a lot of people, even on social media, who comment on posts of, of uh, like tourists traveling in, you know, places like Africa. And, you know, as soon as you see, you know, a child, the first thing you want to do is like pull out a camera and start taking pictures of them. But there's no real engagement with who this person is. It's just like, oh, look at this strange thing that I'm taking a picture of, right? So there's, you know, that idea of, again, photography being this kind of tool of oppression, especially where it comes to represent non-white subjects. Mm. To that point, what you were just saying, I was thinking about when you see people on Facebook that have gone to a mission trip in Africa, and it's usually white evangelicals, and they're taking pictures with the Africans over there, and how that probably looks as this like white savior mentality. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a complicated thing because I think, you know, a lot of times, particularly, you know, now that everybody has access to a camera, I don't think that people are ne necessarily conscious of the ways that that tool can can be 
problematic. You know, we, we think about it almost like, um, you know, you see people taking pictures of their food when they go to a restaurant. You know, it's like, look at this thing that I experienced without putting a great deal of thought into, you know, what some of the implications of that are, especially again, when, when there is no real engagement around, you know, a person's humanity and you're just taking a picture of them without their permission, without, you know, asking them, you know, if it's okay, you just like pull out a camera and, you know, jump in their face. So again, I think photography has some wonderful, wonderful implications, but also some really problematic histories. Right. When I was doing research, I even thought it was interesting of how film was created and the developing technology. And I don't know if you, you've probably read about a Shirley card and how people would measure the the film when they were developing that they would use the image of this white woman with brown hair named Shirley and they were oh, measuring wow. and they were measuring it against that skin color. And so there wasn't a lot of contrast for darker skin. Mm -hmm. I think it wasn't until, you know, fairly recently, maybe like the seventies or eighties, uh, where the people who produced film like Kodak, you know, really began to take into account, you know, how to properly capture a darker color skin. I can probably go through a number of photo albums from my high school days and there's pictures where you can barely see me, you know what I mean? Because the quality of the camera, the quality of the film, et cetera, did not take into account darker skinned people. And I mean, this is a conversation that even comes up in terms of conversations around AI and that, that type of technology. You know, there's certain kinds of biases that are embedded in, in, in those technologies, just because people don't, again, take into consideration the full spectrum of human experiences when they're developing these things. Mm, yeah. Things we are still struggling with it today. Yeah. So how does this exhibition refocus examine these racial biases? Well, one of the ways this exhibition attempts to do that is through reimagining what the practice and the process of photography fully entails. And this was really inspired by a conversation that I was having with the photographer Dawood Bey. And uh, Dawood is very, very deliberate and intentional about even the language he uses when he describes his practice. He doesn't take pictures. He doesn't shoot, you know, photos with a camera, right? He He's very conscious of using language that is affirming, like he makes images in conversation with his subjects, you know, in collaboration with his subjects. And that was really sort of the starting point for me. And so when I began thinking about this exhibition, I, I wanted to engage with photographers who I felt had a different type of approach. And each of the artists in this exhibition are artists that I know, I'm, I'm familiar with their practice, and I've seen the ways in which they use their camera not to take pictures, but to create experiences with photography as a medium versus, you know, just trying to document something. Mm. Melissa, you are one of the photographers in this exhibit. And when I was looking through your photographs, I noticed one of the photos titled Ode to Kwame. This is in reference to the photographer Kwame Brathwaite, who captured black life and celebrities in the 1960s and 70s. Would you describe your photograph and how it relates to his work? Yeah, absolutely. When I first was introduced to Kwame Brathwaite's work, I was doing a lot of research about 1960s and 1970s, like pro-Black, not propaganda, but like pro-Black films, photographs, everything. And so I stumbled across his name. And when I saw his work and found out more about him, you know, coming to understand that 
you know, Kwame was one of the first people to state and proudly claim, proclaim that, you know, Black is beautiful. And this was before it got, you know, a lot of traction in the late 60s and the 70s and stuff. He was encouraging Black folks to wear African garbs, to wear their natural hair, to be proud of who they are, you know, in a society that shames us, right? Or makes us, you know, attempts us to make us feel less than. And I love that, right? His photographs of Black women specifically are usually pretty simple, right? But there's so much grace and there's so much beauty and strength and pride, right? So the reason I name this particular photograph Ode to Kwame was because the little girl, the model, her name is Arian. And at the conclusion of our session, I asked Erin, I was like, all right, look, I've, I've told you <laughs> how to pose and I've told you what I wanted from you, but I want to see what you want to do, right? She's like, well, what is that? You know, what do you mean? And I was like, just pose. How do you want to pose? And her putting her hand, uh, you know, against her cheek and the other one on her, her chest and she's kind of looking off camera um, in this very regal, beautiful pose, it made me think about the fact that I'm looking at a young black girl who likes herself, who loves herself. This was my first time meeting Arian, right? And so throughout the session, she was very spicy. She had lots of opinions. She's nine years old um, and really coming into who she's going to be as she enters into adolescence and then you know adulthood. And I could see that this was a girl who who felt that, you know, who felt herself, like she enjoys herself, she loves herself. And that was the same energy that I got from looking at, you know, Kwame Brathwaite's work. And being an admirer of him, it's it's almost like looking at another generation of those same, you know, people that he was photographing in the 60s and 70s. Once again, proclaiming proudly that black is beautiful. Mm. I I love this this photograph of Arian. I mean, she looks like a young actress in the making. <laughs> <laughs> she is. <laughs> she is. She says she's never acted before, but there was just a spark inside of her that that really really came across and I'm real thankful that you know, when I like I put out a call, I really wanted a 6 to 8 year old and Arian's mom, Erica, was the first to respond to my Facebook post. And she was like, I have a little girl, you know, she's nine, but she's short. Do you think you might? I was like, look, I'm on a time crunch. Let's just roll with it. But it ended up being the best decision, you know, for us to have the session. Like it was, it, everything just worked together the way that it should. Mm-hmm. No, and some of the photos, I love the attitude that she's bringing <laughs> across the camera. What did you want to focus on in Black life and culture in these photographs in particular? When Fahamu brought this idea to us and we all sat down and he was just like, I want you guys to focus on what you want to focus on. And from the perspective of being a Black woman, immediately, like it was, you know, I had some thought, but it felt like almost immediately I zeroed in on the very distinct memory of my mom doing my hair <laughs> on a Saturday morning when I was a child, 
right? Because there was something so, there was something so, it, it's, it's a moment, it's this very small moment, right? That like defined my childhood. And so I found myself, I guess as a child, I found myself sitting under a hairdryer feeling repressed, feeling like I couldn't do what I wanted to do, feeling like I was watching the world go by. And now as a grown woman, when I sit under a hairdryer, I find peace. And there's a lot of intimacy that exists for the black child when they're getting their hair done in a kitchen, right? It's the heart of the home. And it's time for a mother and her daughter to spend with each other. Um, I mean, there could be, <laughs> there can sometimes be a little, um, a little friction depending on how hard, you know, the mom goes in on the on her daughter's hair, but this is something that has happened for generations. My daughter sits between my legs, you know, my knees when I'm doing her hair, I sat between my mother's and my mom sat, you know, between my grandmother's and going back and going back and going back. So I really wanted to connect and show appreciation for those moments, right? I really wanted to document this idea that while I felt like I was being repressed and I was being held back from doing what I wanted to do on a Saturday morning so I could watch cartoons, what in fact was happening was that my mom was handing me the tools so that I would know how to beautify myself. She was handing me lessons that she had learned from her mother. She was caring for me, right? And so in a, in a really large way, the entire series of photos talks about the protection of a mother for her child or for her daughter. And the idea that when a dryer is placed on a child's head, you know, they can neither see nor hear anything. Because of their mother, there's an idea that what information can pass through to them right? If you can't see or hear, the person who's putting the dryer on your head controls how much you know. And when a mom does her daughter's hair, she may not, you know, she, she can feed to her whatever information about it, right? So for example, when I do my daughter's hair, I often tell her, your hair is so beautiful. It's so thick. Look how it grows to the sun all of these different things. But if she were to have her hair done by someone else, it could be a totally different experience. They could tell her any number of things about her hair. So a mom's protection is really what this series is about. Wow, that is so beautiful, Melissa. And what beautiful affirmations you are giving to your daughter to pass down to possibly her daughter and other people. That's wonderful. If you're just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm City Lights producer Summer Evans, and I've been speaking with curator Dr. Fahamu Peku, along with photographers Melissa Alexander and Stephanie Brown. We've been talking about Swan Coach House Gallery's exhibition, Refocus. Stephanie, would you describe your photographs on display and what you wanted your work to focus on? Sure. So my photographs that are on display right now are largely a part of a ongoing series that I call Light and Love. And for me, 
these images are highly contrast, black and white, chiaroscuro uh, lighting style images that are intentionally a little illustrative, really detailed in just the, the playing of light and shadow. And for me, I refer to many of them as vignettes of different perspectives and body parts of Black women. For me, the, all, of, all of the images and this work together, they really communicate a really private opportunity for the person who's being photographed. It's this opportunity that I like to describe before I'm I'm co I'm co-creating with the person that I'm that I'm photographing. I think some behind the scenes information is that I actually spend a couple weeks interviewing the women that I photograph. And it's not a pass or fail kind of interview, but I'm really looking for an opportunity to know more about them and know more about what are the things that they might be fighting with within themselves? What are some things that they maybe don't love about themselves? What are some things that they do love about themselves? I think each of these women were at the time of being photographed kind of undergoing uh, some type of transition in their life in which they were excited about the opportunity to own it. And what I hope for these images to convey and share is owning who you are, how you are, despite of how you might feel about yourself, despite of the transition that you're in. There's a great bit of confidence. And that's something that I have always found nudity to push us towards. It's our most vulnerable state that we can be in. And oftentimes I'm not even describing the people that I photograph as models anymore because sometimes that word can like get in people's heads, but more so I'm interested in photographing people, <laughs> you know, photographing people in a way that accentuates the parts of themselves that they might be contending with, that accentuate parts of themselves that Society might say that we need to hide, we need to conceal, this isn't cute. The certain details that I look for in my images from uh, stretch marks to goosebumps to the textures of our skin, hair, nails, all of that, these are all elements that I think my use of light and shadow allow me to accentuate in a way that I hope that people will see the confidence in these women through the images and inspire them to find a different sense of confidence for themselves in examining who they are. Mm. I, I really think that comes through in your photographs. I mean, they look so comfortable in front of the camera to be exposing all of themselves. Like you said, to, it's so vulnerable, but yet they are exuding that confidence in these photographs. And I noticed that you used bodies of all different types, all different shapes and sizes and that's amazing. I do. And that's really important to me. Personally, I am the last of five in my family. And I come from generations of women of all shapes and sizes. Coincidentally, I'm like the smallest and the skinniest in my family. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so important to 
highlight all of that range. And I am very conscientious of how photography has been used as a tool to keep certain body types out. And you determine, you know, a magazine is going to determine what's in, what's hot, what's sexy right now. And aware of that, I'm always very conscientious of making sure that the people that I photograph are across the gamut. Uh, again, to me, this is, a, this is an experience. So what the viewers get to see in the gallery is just the end product of this much more intimate experience that I'm having with the person who I photographed where, you know, hey, I'm not really a big fan of my uh, stretch marks. I'm going to make them look immaculate, <laughs> you know, and these are the kind of opportunities that I get to have one-on-one -on -one with the people that I photograph where I feel like it does become a transformational opportunity. This is where I feel like I'm doing through my artwork. I get to help them on their journey of awareness of themselves, of their own journey of self-love. I think that it's something that all people go through, but with the complexities of a Black woman's identity, that pressure and that weight, it's just different. And I do really feel that my work, I get to be a part of their journey and helping them discover themselves and see themselves on a pedestal. You know, you're worthy of, of being on a wall, <laughs> you know, of being collected, of being showcased, like all of these parts of you. You didn't need makeup. You didn't need any fancy clothes, you know, you didn't need any expensive shoes. Like this was you in your rawness mm -hmm. and it's perfect. It really is. And I love how your work is in conversation with Melissa's work and this black is beautiful, you know, pushing that out there. And I believe the other photographers as well. Fahamu, which I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the other photographers who are in this exhibit, Tara Coles and Natrice Miller. Sure. Natrice Miller, her work is <laughs> extremely compelling to me because not only is she a very talented photographer, but she really pushes the medium in terms of the presentation of her work. And so there, there are projects that she's done that have taken her photography into the space of like experimental film and, you know, performance-based work. But in this particular exhibition, she has elevated the practice of cyanotypes. She has photographed and documented the stories of various women through the process of their weddings. So uh, what she's presenting in the exhibition is a series of portraits of wedding dresses that she then produced as a cyanotype and then have reprinted on a sheer fabric, which is very similar to the kind of material that's used in like a, a veil for a wedding dress. So what you have in the exhibition is these almost ghost-like images of wedding dresses, which are really, really striking. And, you know, absent a body, they still tell a very, very compelling story. So it's a really beautiful installation. I believe there are five of these pieces that are hanging. And, you know, based on where you're standing, you can almost position yourself to be able to see through each of the dresses, which is really dynamic. Um, it's a really beautiful presentation. And then Tara Coles is probably the most... I don't want to call inexperienced, but this is her first exhibition. But she has been making photographs for as long as I've known her, and I've known her over a decade. And she's one of my absolute favorite photographers in the city. She has 
such a keen eye and what what she's able to present through her work is always really striking. Like I'm, I'm always blown away. I'm like, how did you see that? You know, the, the works that she's done are really sort of very classic detail moments, detailed portraits in black and white. Very, very classic, but but also very contemporary at the same time. The way she plays with with light and uh, shadow, similar to, to Stephanie, is to very dramatic effect. But again, it's a kind of intimacy in her portraiture that I don't think is, is very common. Mm. Wow. What a diverse range that you have on display in this exhibition, but they all are in communication with one another. Yeah, most certainly. And I mean, it, again, it kind of goes back again to the, the idea that I was sharing before around Dawood's resistance to uh, using certain types of, of language to describe his practice. I, I think there's a, a really very feminist approach in that, right? And the way each of these artists approach the, the medium and the discipline is, you know, and especially being Black women, we're going to see things that we might not have seen, you know, traditionally through the medium, through the discipline. And that was one, one of the things that I really wanted to draw attention to. It's like, what happens when you change who the photographer is? How does that change the photograph? And I think we see the evidence of that in, in some really dynamic and diverse ways through this exhibition. Dr. Fahamu Peku, curator of the photography exhibition Refocus, with two of the featured artists, Stephanie Brown and Melissa Alexander. The show is on view at the Swan Coach House Gallery through October 27th. There will be an artist's talk at the gallery on October 15th at 3 p.m. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series of local musicians in their own words. Speaking of music, today featuring the buzzards of fuzz. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hey, my name is Benjamin Davidow. And I'm Van Baseman. And, and we're, we're the, the guitarists and vocalists for psychedelic rock outfit, The Buzzards of Fuzz. I grew up with music around the house. My father was a jazz pianist and my mother was a classical pianist. Growing up in and around, a bunch of musicians inspired me to pursue music as a profession. I didn't fall into music until I was in high school. A close friend lent me an old Hendrix disc, and I annoyed my father until he brought home a student model Yamaha acoustic guitar. It 
Atlanta made me tough and Atlanta keeps me working. The city too busy to hate won't accept anything less than our best, and when we travel to other cities to perform, we bring a lot of that with us. It's a hard scene and it keeps you on your toes. And well, we tried to leave, but traffic was so bad we couldn't get past the perimeter. When I first moved to Atlanta, I realized that my grandmother was buried here. I went for a visit, and the plastic flowers on her grave were a little worse for wear. So I drove across town in rush hour traffic to pick up some new mums for her. It was a sweltering summer day in Atlanta, and some condensation from my soda leaked into my car stereo, killing my radio. So here I was, stuck in traffic, on the way to place flowers on my grandmother's grave in this oppressive summer heat with no radio. I started singing and banging on the dashboard, and the song, Desert Driving, No Radio, was bored. I always thank my grandmother for that song. Feels like it was a real gift. Thanks, Grandma. Lonely in Space is a song that Van and I wrote when we first met each other over a decade ago. We've experienced so many amalgamations of it, different players, arrangements, states of mind, performing in various settings, etc., that it's really become more of a living, breathing mantra than a song. Our first full-length self-titled record, The Buzzards of Fuzz, is now available on vinyl, compact disc, and all major digital platforms. More information can be found at thebuzzardsoffuzz.com. Benjamin David Dow and Van Basement. From the Buzzards of Fuzz. More information about the band and our series Speaking of Music is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The Oakhurst Porch Fest is known as the ultimate grassroots festival. Tomorrow, Saturday, October 8th, the annual music festival is back from noon to 7 p.m. The homegrown event features hundreds of performances on Oakhurst porches throughout the neighborhood. Spectators can wander the streets, traveling from house to house, listening to various bands and performers. The event is free and open to the public. A map and schedule of the concerts are available on the website oakhurstporchfest.org. 
or. And finally, this weekend is the Atlanta Pride Festival, which returns in person at Piedmont Park. Look for WABE in Sunday's parade as we join you in celebrating Atlanta's diverse LGBTQ plus community. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Mike Wiley tells us about his upcoming one-man show, Breach of Peace, The Freedom Riders of 1961, plus a visit with folk artist Harry Underwood His current exhibition, Outdoor Worship, is at Wadi Gallery through October 29th. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.